0: You know, it doesn't really matter how great the preacher is or how strong the believer may be or how much you've developed in your relationship with Jesus Christ because sooner or later you will fail. There will come a time where you just don't seem to measure up, even to your own expectations. And you will face the reality that you are human and defective. I love the words from Bible commentator William Hendrickson. He says this, and I quote, Let no one say that Peter was a man completely lacking in courage. On the contrary, a careful examination of the Gospels indicate that among all the disciples, he was one of the most daring. Was it not Peter who said in Matthew 14, Lord, if it is... Is uh, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And was it not he who also boldly declared in Mark 8.29, you are the Christ? Was it not he all by himself taking on the entire mob that had come to Gethsemane to capture Jesus, who had drawn a sword and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. Yes, Peter was definitely a man of great courage, end quote. But Peter was human. And here in this event that we will see this morning, we get a close-up and personal view of who Peter is. And I'm thankful that this is here because... There are so many times when I go through life and I think I have to be Superman and I blow it. It gives us comfort. It gives us a sense of God's grace. It gives us stamina when we blow it. But we get up and we go at it. Again and again, John MacArthur has said, "You need to be aware of those who are always the heroes of their own stories." The Apostle Paul, or Peter, was certainly a man who talked big game, but when the whistle blew and the game was on, Peter cracked under pressure. That's what we're going to see this morning, and of course. We know the end of the story. But before we get to the end of the story, which tells us that he repented and was restored, and after he was restored, actually became one of the most influential of all the apostles, we need to understand something about his failure. He did repent, and Mark sort of hints at that in chapter 16 where they were seeking Jesus' body after the resurrection, and his followers were told some very intriguing things after he had risen. I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And I want, even though I'm, we're looking at one verse, I want you to see this. Because here it says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. You see what it says? But go tell his disciples and Peter. It's almost as if he's saying, hey folks, remember, Peter is still a disciple. Peter is still one of the chosen. He doesn't fit in the category as Judas. He is not apostate. Yes, he is pretty bold and bombastic, whose utter failure has been recorded in the pages of Scripture for the world to see. But notice, he's not the hero of the story. Now, I don't think that every time we fail, we need to tell everyone everything. However, we do need to tell God. And that's the reason why this story shows up in his inspired word. Peter saw the need to tell Mark this story because it shows that God can restore and use someone who deals honestly with their sin. When you're tested and you fail, there is hope. And if you remember, Peter's relaying all of this to Mark. Mark is the writer of this, but Peter is where he, Mark is getting primarily the source of information. And so I truly believe that Peter, along with Mark, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit, wants us to learn a number of valuable lessons regarding this public failure of Peter. He was a man of integrity, but he also wanted the world to know of his great failure. Out of all the apostles... I think Peter is one of those who we can relate to the most. We're all guilty at times, like Peter, having said the wrong thing, done the wrong thing, poor timing. But if you notice, we look at Paul. No one calls him Saul Paul. But we do hear Simon Peter combining both his previous life with his life now. Showing us the frailty of the flesh. And there's little doubt that even with these frailties, he was one of the most courageous of the twelve apostles. It wouldn't be much of a stretched to describe him as a daring apostle as he took on the soldiers and the temple police in the garden where he started to swing his sword. Too bad it was a sword made of metal and not the sword of the Spirit, which we read about in Galatians or Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians six, seventeen. Peter was one of those who daringly accused, and rightly so, the religious leaders after Jesus' resurrection. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. He told them that they were guilty of killing Jesus. It was Peter who dared to challenge those same authorities after being warned not to preach or teach about Christ anymore. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter boldly says, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, what he was saying, I will follow Christ. I'm not following you. But in our text this morning, we'll see the failure of Peter. In the face of adversity, all the gospel writers record this incident of Peter denying the Lord Jesus Christ. I would like to just mention that this is just an example of how the Bible does not hide faults of believers, but frankly admits the worst instances of the remaining sin the shameful behavior and dishonesty amongst the people of God. So if you would, let's turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Mark chapter 14. And we'll be looking at verses 66 through 72, the end of the chapter. Starting with verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Now, make no mistake about this fact. This is a major failure to deny Jesus Christ was a great sin but to deny him 3 times is even worse and here Jesus Christ he was physically on earth he was going through all of these horrible things and he was doing it alone he could have he could have had used someone at his side but there was none not a single one all the disciples had fled And Peter not only fled, but he denied Christ three times and began to curse and swear. This sin could only be committed the night of Christ's trials. And what's amazing about this is that Jesus Christ predicted that he would do that. But do you know what he also predicted? That Peter would become instrumental in Christ building his church. Peter knew who Christ was. He had a Christological grasp of all of this, and that would be critical to building the church. And it's amazing that God could still use this cracked and failed apostle that God can use flawed people to accomplish His sovereign purposes. Even when we don't hit the mark. And I hope in this text this morning, we start to understand how can God use us when we are so frail and fickle. we see now that Peter realizes that he's not as strong as he thought he was. He's not as strong as he hoped he would be. He actually has no strength, no courage. And this can cause despair when we think of how weak and fickle and cowardly we are. But just think of what our culture says. Our culture says... You can do anything you put your mind to. All you need is good self-esteem. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says the believer's hope comes when they look away from themselves and look to the strength of Christ. First Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, we're not as strong as we think we are. And Peter's denial is a warning to us to help us realize that we aren't as strong as we think we are either. I mean, if if Peter, the number one disciple, was Jesus' right-hand man, so to speak, he was part of this inner circle. If anyone was going to be strong, it should have been him. But here he is, weak and fearful. And so what we have in the Gospel of Mark is a faithful record of Peter's knowledge and experience with Jesus. This gives us a vivid description of Peter flat out blowing it. He learned his lesson and he wants us to He warned others by sharing of his failings. I think this shows the humiliation that Peter would be willing to share all these painful details for our benefit. He wasn't thinking about self. He was thinking about the beloved church of Christ. And Peter actually later on indirectly admitted that he was a tool of Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter learned this, and then he warned the church. If you'd please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 5 through 11. First Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Remember, this is Peter writing this. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that word sober there? The word is nafo. And it means to be calm, collected, sober-minded, clear-minded. Not having anything that would cause you to not be clear of mind. That word vigilant, it's the word... Gregor Yuo, and it means to be actively cautious, actively cautious, giving strict attention to things. Folks, we can't possibly be victorious by being complacent. As a matter of fact, Peter says, I live, I live this. I understand what it's like not to resist the devil. He realizes his big failure is that he stood on the flesh instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's essentially saying that's bad strategy for spiritual warfare. And so getting back to our text, if you recall, while Jesus was up in the upper room, the high priest spit on him and plucked his beard and punched him. And here Peter is down below in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. It must have been a chilly night because two times we see the fire mentioned. So if you look at verse 66 again, it says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And since there was a trial taking place at night, one of the servant girls was down by the fire. We don't really know why she was down in the courtyard, but perhaps because this trial was going on. She was not able to be part of what was going on, so her responsibilities were uh, set aside, and maybe she was, at that point, off duty. But the servant girl was obviously by the fire with others. That word servant girl is actually one in the Greek, and it's, it's the word pediske, and it indicates that this was actually a young uh, a young girl a slave girl a maid servant and she was given charge of the door and then in verse 67 it says and when she saw peter warming himself she looked at him and said you also were with jesus of nazareth now according to this verse the servant girl saw peter and she was staring at him she saw him by the light of the fire and she started looking at him. That word look is uh, the, the Greek word emblepo. And it's an intensive form in the, the Greek. It's an intense stare fixed on him. I remember when I was at G3 and I saw someone get off the elevator and I wasn't sure if it was Vodibachum Vody or not. And I gave him the stare like this. He gave me a stare like this. Like, okay, you don't realize it's me? I was staring him down. This wasn't just a glance. I was intensely staring. And this is what this this young lady was doing. She was staring, trying to consider whether or not she recognized him. But she was sure that she had recognized him. We don't know where she saw him. Maybe she had seen him uh, in the temple with Jesus? We just don't know. But in any case, she says uh, to Peter in verse 67 that he was with Jesus of Nazareth. She said this in front of everybody, that Peter was with this Nazarene. Now, remember, the Jews did not like the Galileans. And actually in John one forty six it says, can anything come out of Nazareth? Anything good come out of Nazareth? And so this servant girl is just repeating what she had heard that Jesus was from Nazareth. And she's claiming that Peter had been with them. And she's saying this around the fire. And you got to remember, there were some officers Uh, uh, sitting there right with them. And of course, Jesus was from Nazareth. But she wasn't identifying so much the location which he was from. This was more of a pejorative title of derision. It was a, a statement of hostility. She didn't like the fact that Peter identified with the Nazarene Jesus. In fact, later in, Acts 24.5, it was said and used against the followers of Jesus by civil magistrates. It says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. You see, Peter at this point, He doesn't feel the heat of the fire anymore, folks. He's feeling the the heat of being figured out by a hostile servant girl. A servant girl of the high priest who could go and tell the authorities. That's what we need to understand. The pressure is hot. The flames are hot. And so we read in verse uh, 68 of the text, it says, but he denied it, saying, I neither knew I I I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. Peter's basically saying, I have not been with Jesus. I don't even know what you're talking about. In fact, I don't even know or understand what you are saying to me. Isn't that something that is so common? When people get caught in a lie... They've done something wrong. They go, I don't know what you're talking about. He knew exactly what she was talking about. Makes me think of that little guy on, uh, I forget what show, Gary Coleman played it. He goes, what you talking about, Willis? It's just basically going, man, he just was denying it. So Peter got up went out onto the porch. A little closer to the exit. He had been by the fire, but when things really got hot, he wanted to move away from it. Now the porch was probably near the entryway. It was, uh, it, it was uh, still inside the courtyard, but closer to the entryway. And Peter was probably there thinking, you know what? I move out there I, I I can probably get away a little bit quicker he was ashamed of being associated with the Nazarene as a matter of fact Luke twenty-two fifty-seven 57 says his words were strong there we read but he denied him saying woman I do not know him now this is probably said because in the first century, female witnesses were considered unreliable. So he's point, trying to point out this by saying, woman, I don't know him. Really playing it off. He's playing stupid. Because notice his words. I neither know nor understand what you mean. He's trying to avoid confrontation. Now, maybe he's trying to do it in some sort of legal denial. You know, that sort of thing existed in the world where Peter lived. But the rest of verse 68 says that not only trying to avoid the issue of denying our Lord Jesus Christ, it was sort of cloaked in a... uh, flimsy, half-truth, legal language. But also, his actions showed that he did know because he went onto the porch. He got away from the fire, went to the porch. And the porch is, is actually um, the Greek word uh, proauleon, And it's talking about a vestibule. It's, it's, it's a corridor, but it, it leads to the street. It's dark. It's outside of the, the flickering light of where people were warming themselves. And so we can just imagine that Peter is out there. He's trying to get away. And so as Jesus receives cold-hearted false accusations, Peter is comfort, conflict- comfortably warming himself by the fire until it gets hot and his identity gets figured out. And then he steps away from the light of the fire and goes to the entrance of the porch hoping that no one could avoid him, uh, could uh, recognize him. I don't know if you thought about this while we we're reading this, but Peter steps away from the light of the fire. Actually, he's stepping away from the light of the world. He's moving further and further away from Jesus, the light of the world, who is about to be killed. Peter steps into the dark place, the dark place he never thought he would go. Further and further Away from his association with Jesus and closer to, more close actually, to Judas. But also remember, our salvation is all of, all of him, all of Christ. But also your ability to remain in him is all of him. That's the doctrine of Perseverance of the saints. He calls you, He brings you, and He keeps you. The end of verse 68 says, and a rooster crowed, just as Christ predicted back in verse 30, where He said, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny Me three times. So beside getting away from the light of the fire, what else was Peter doing on the porch? He's trying to avoid situation. He's trying to make a quick escape. If you remember, Peter was probably fairly fast, but I think it's funny that John tells us that after the resurrection and as they're running toward the tomb, Peter and John were racing and John says, Yeah, actually, I beat Peter there. Uh, So we know that he wasn't really bragging because John really uh, was very humble. But John was physically faster than Peter, probably spiritually as well. But Peter wasn't aware of things as much as he thought he was because once John got there, once Peter got in, John got out. John wasn't there. In fact, if you turn to John chapter 18, I think we'll find something very interesting. And and as I was looking over this in my studies, I thought this was, was very interesting. And And you'll probably want to just keep your finger there, because we will turn to John 18 again, just in a little bit here. Here, John 18, starting with verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest, and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her and, uh, who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. That other disciple is John describing himself. So here, John is pressured by Peter. Hey, you got to get me in. You know these people. You have the context. Help get me in. So John got the door to open and Peter came in. And so if you think about it, unwittingly, John contributed to Peter's great, uh, tragic denials. But you notice the language. You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? In other words, inner mind, you also? You and the other man, John? You're both one of Jesus' disciples. Where's John? seems as though John hightailed it before. But bold Peter, daring and arrogant Peter, entered the place of temptation, and he lingered. He lingered long enough until finally he wavered and denied the Lord. And now he's looking to escape. But oh wait, there's more. Verse 69, And the servant girl saw him again, and and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. It says the servant girl saw him. Matthew says another girl, a different one, saw him. Luke says another. So we assume that this is another servant girl who is probably involved with the first denial. Uh, Luke uses a masculine pronoun for another. So it's kind of generic, and we assume that there were other people in the corridor who would have been privy to Peter's denial. There were people just sort of milling around the setting. And so here Peter's trying to escape, hiding in the shadows, doesn't do very well at getting away. And then in verses 69 and 70 calls those who stood by and he's confronted another time. Beginning of verse 70, it says, but he denied it again. So now you have two servant girls. They're standing around in the courtyard and they're saying Peter was one of the disciples. Now, here's the, here's the thing that makes this turn. We know from Luke's response that one of the bystanders was a male. Because in Luke twenty-two fifty-eight, 58, in response to this accusation uh, that he was one of Jesus' disciples, here's what Peter says. Man, I am not. So first of all, he tells the servant girl, woman, I am not. And Luke, he tells, man, I am not. The important thing is, he denied it again. You know, we often refer to this as the second denial, but technically it's the second stage of the first denial. That word denied is the word "arnetomai," and it's in the imperfect tense. It would basically uh, literally be Uh, Say he kept on denying. This is a repeated denial because of the repeated accusations, and so that stands in contrast to the first denial, where the the same word, but this time it's in the aorist tense, which conveys an isolated, single denial uh, that Peter denied it and walked away to the gate. And so the pressure was even hotter. Now there's more witnesses. You can probably hear the hush going on. Some were talking to Peter directly and accusing him. And the thing that we need to remind ourselves through this whole thing is Deuteronomy 19 says, on the basis of of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. It's getting uncomfortable because two women probably not going to be witnesses used in court. But now there's a man. Now all you need is one more man to come forward. Peter's probably thinking in his mind that it's getting worse. But the most important question at this point is what caused Peter to reach this dark place of denial in the first place. We're talking about his steps that led there. So if you would please go ahead and turn back to John 18. Because I think that you'll see that there's a domino effect that's going on. This is kind of the thing that broke him and made it harder. John 18, verse 25. Now, Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now look at this. Verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, and if you don't know, that's Malchus' cousin. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Remember, Malchus had his ear cut off by Peter and then, then Jesus restored it? You see, Peter's conscience was hardened because Peter was more fearful of man than he was of God. He was more fearful in that moment of the wolves that surrounded him and associating uh, who he was as one, the one who cut off his cousin's ear than he was to be associated with Christ. Perhaps they'd seen him, and he's trying to disassociate from not only Christ, but the rest of the disciples. He's Trying to say, I'm on my own and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to save my own hide. Folks, sometimes we are embarrassed by certain Christians. We're sometimes tempted to disavow our connection with the church as a whole, saying they, they do their thing, I'm not one of them. Just wondering if that's partly a denial of Christ himself. Because as Christians, we have both a vertical and horizontal connection to both the head and the body. It's been said. If you don't love the bride, you don't truly love the bridegroom. Sometimes people shy away from the church because of self-protection. Because they've been hurt. And so now they're gun-shy. And they don't think they're trying to follow Jesus at a distance, but they are. Because they're willing to not attend church or follow at a distance. That's why, folks, I... I am so, I'm actually going to say appalled that so many churches continue this online service thing. While COVID was going on, I understood. We didn't understand everything. Churches were doing that. But to continue it when you can meet helps people just go, well, you know, I can be part of the church. If you were married and you told your wife that I'm going to move out and I'm going to move to a different state, but we're still married. Or even if you say, you know what, I know it's our anniversary, but how about we just go to fast food, get it over with because there's a game. I need to catch that game that's on. Or I need to do this or that. Wives, how would you feel? Would you feel as though your husband was 100% committed to you? We need to consider that. Sometimes we're hurt. Sometimes we can barely stand it. But we go, you know what? We're part of the body. We need to come together as a church for the sake of his bride and for the sake of the bridegroom. Because when we don't, we're easy pickings for the enemy. And lone rangers are dead rangers. And so Peter faced hostile crowds. And when... They were told to go out two by two. Do you notice? He handled it fine. As long as there was another disciple there with him. But now he's alone and he falls. Following Jesus at a safe distance weakens you. It increases your fear. It clouds your understanding. It dulls your conscience and isolates you from your brothers and sisters and Christ even when you're within the church even within your when you are part of the body of Christ sometimes you do feel lonely sometimes when you're living for the truth maintaining a good testimony standing up for what is right and you are falsely accused? Sometimes it's lonely. But remember, the world doesn't like truth-tellers. The world operates on the principle of lies and manipulation. I thought this quote from John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was beautiful. Knox said, the man who stands with God is always in a majority. The man who stands with God is always in a majority. Peter should have known in that that moment the same thing. But instead, he's fearful. And Knox the boldness of Knox to even say that was because Mary, Queen, Queen of Scots, and by the way, she was Roman Catholic, but she tolerated Protestants in Scotland. Here's what she said of Knox. I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembly, assembled armies of Europe. I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. That is the power of a Christian who prays. And that's exactly what Peter didn't do. He didn't pray in the garden. He didn't pray in the courtyard. And he found himself denying. Totally defeated. Hardened conscience. And I think that's a warning to us. We need to keep short accounts with God lest our conscience grows hard. Peter cracked. But as we look at the rest of verse 70, it wasn't only being recognized, but apparently his accent gave him away. There it says, and a little later, those who stood by peter uh, stood stood by said to peter again surely you are one of them for you are a galilean and your speech shows it matthew tells us after a little while the bystanders came up to peter in matthew 26 73 says certainly you are one of them for your accent betrays you in other words You talk like a Galilean hick. You got this twang to you. And only the Galileans have that. There's no way you don't know Jesus. Plus, I just saw you in the temple. You see, people from Galilee spoke with an Aramaic dialect, and it was different. Same words, different way they pronounced them. Sort of like you can tell someone from the South or someone from the Midwest. Here's the irony Jesus was accused by false witnesses and didn't break. Peter is accused by true witnesses and he does break. And we know Peter didn't do anything half-heartedly, including his denial of our Lord. These words uh, repeated by the servant girl and then the man and the bystanders. They're all accusations that were actually true. And this is all happening while Jesus is on trial above the courtyard. Peter is on trial in the courtyard. And as the words ring out in the courtyard, the accusations come and it's convicting his guilty conscience. His conscience got harder and harder and harder. And then the third denial. Look at verse 71 then he began to curse and swear i do not know this man of whom you speak the word then stands in contrast to the first the first two denials this time peter is so emphatic that he isn't a follower of christ he starts to curse and swear now, a lot of people go, oh, you know, he was a lot of choice language. It's not what it means. The Greek word for curse is the word uh, anathematizo. And it means to pronounce a curse on someone or something. It's to declare one's self-liability to the severest divine penalty To anathematize means to damn someone to hell. Cursing Christ became a common way for people to prove they weren't Christians. The Roman magistrate and lawyer known as Pliny the Younger, he reported to the Emperor Trajan that when he interrogated suspected Christians, He would ask the prisoner three times, are you a Christian with threats of punishment and death? The accused proved his or her innocence by cursing Jesus. Something Pliny says, those who are really Christians cannot be made to do. This curse was proof enough to the authorities that that person was not a Christian. In the martyrdom of Polycarp, the pro-council tells the bishop, Swear, and I will release you. To which Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And according to Justin Martyr, the Jewish rebel leader uh, Bar Kokhba gave Christians the choice between death and cursing Christ. Cursing Christ, therefore, was proof that they were not a Christian. And so here, Peter is pronouncing a curse upon himself if he's lying. He literally pulls down the hand of God on his whole head, his own head, if he's lying. And he swears by it. The word swear is the word omnuo. And it means to affirm, to promise, to threaten. You've heard it. I swear I'm telling the truth. That's what we say, right? I swear on the stack of Bibles. I'm telling the truth. That's what this word means. And the more likely they're lying, the more they pile up the things that they're willing to swear to. That's Peter. He's lying, he knows he's lying. But he pronounces a curse upon himself if he's lying. And he swears by everything he could swear by. At first, it's the single lie of a girl. Then ramps up to lies from several people. And now, there's a flurry of curses and a flurry of swearing. Peter's hit rock bottom right here. This shows the cowardice he displayed under pressure of ungodly people in the courtyard during Jesus' trial. Peter's courage failed him in the hour of trial. And he did exactly what Jesus said he would do. But you know, Peter's denial of Jesus gives us an interesting and formative insight into ourselves. Brash bragging of confidence without thinking things through gives us the sense that we're strong enough to withstand the influences of the ungodly. What generally happens in an encounter with the ungodly is a a desire to conform to their habits to their principles. We're not willing to challenge them. Even if we thought that we could maintain our integrity integrity with them, we can easily see that dissipate when we fall to their ideas and we fall to their pressure. So finally, in verse 72 of our text, it says, A second time the, cruister, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the words that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. In other words, he remembered in his mind's eye the prophecy of Jesus. Jesus in the upper room just a few hours before. He remembered in his memory the seriousness on Jesus' face when he made that prophecy. That soul-searching memory of Jesus saying, I told you this was going to happen. But there's more than that. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 22. We'll look at verses 60 through 62. This gives us some, some insight here. Luke 22, starting with verse 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. John MacArthur says about this verse, the Lord turned and looked at Peter straight in Peter's eyes, uh, straight into Peter's eyes went the gaze of the Lord Jesus. Perhaps his trial had just ended, and he was coming back across the courtyard, headed to prison, where he'd be kept for a few hours until dawn, a fake trial scourging crucifixion in the morning. His face, covered with spit, black and blue, puffy from being punched in the face and slapped. His garments were covered with sweaty blood that oozed out of his sweat glands in the agonies of the garden. And as he, bound, is taken through the courtyard, he looks right into the eyes of Peter. I'm pretty sure that's a look that Peter never, ever, ever forgot. And while you and I have never had the eyes of Jesus look at us in that way, believe it, the eyes of Jesus are on us all the time. And the same gaze sees us in our sin that saw Peter in his. What a painful moment. It's like the collapse of Peter's. Peter is crystallized, captured and frozen at the moment when their eyes met." We see where it says that he wept wept bitterly. That's one word in the Greek, it's kleo, kleo. And it's in the imperfect tense, which indicates he started weeping and crying, and he couldn't stop. He continued to weep with godly sorrow of true repentance. Spurgeon said of this kind of repentance, it's always a gift of God and a work of the Holy Spirit in the soul. Judas felt remorse for what he had done. You can see that in Matthew 27. But Peter wept over his own sin. This is the real issue of repentance. We will never be greatly used by God like Peter was until we have these kind of honest moments with God great servants of God have had moments of great failures. And these moments of great failures have often led to weeping bitterly over our own sin. To love God at the highest level and to be used by God at the highest level, you must be honest about your vulnerability and failure. What our text says about Peter is that there is restoration. If Peter could be restored and greatly used after this great lapse, so can we. Peter's tears were the beginning of his restoration. When we fail, we cut ourselves from the wellspring of life. We will be dry and thirsty. And the Spirit of God will not use us to bear fruit. But then there's restoration. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, Take heed of yourself and to the doctrine Continue in them, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. All of us, but especially the preacher, must observe his manner of life and his doctrine that he preaches, not only for his own sake, but for the sake of those who hear. If God would forgive Peter and greatly use him, he can forgive you and greatly use you as well. But here's the key, you must hate your sin. You must confess your sin. And I've said this numerous times and I will continue. The word confess means to speak the same. It's not telling God, oh, I did this. It's saying the sin that you say I did is sin against you. You say it's sin, I'm saying it's sin. I'm telling you, I am broken over this sin. But I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because remember in Mark, he's getting the information from Peter. Here, Peter is speaking. I want you to see it as Peter speaks to us. First Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 6. And I love the way this starts. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, listen to what it says, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, whom not seeing you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your trial is put there to bring you through the fire that purifies you. And that's what Peter is saying. I've been there. My trial was a trial that brought upon myself and God still used that. I failed. I wasn't sober-minded. I wasn't watching. I didn't resist the the devil. So he's saying, folks, make sure you resist. Make sure you're sober-minded. Make sure you watch. Please listen to my mistakes. And you know what? Peter requested that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being crucified right side up like his Lord. I think Hudson Taylor, he was the missionary to China Inland Mission. He said this, and I thought this was so profound. God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough and then he uses them. That's how God works. That's how God always works. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. We should hope and pray for this. That God would use a simple people. That God would use redeemed sinners. All for his glory. Whatever weakness you have, may God be gracious to give us the courage to finish well. And let us be warned by Peter's denials, but at the same time be encouraged by Peter's restoration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these words of truth. They do indeed cut to our heart. They convict us. They cause us to think about our own brokenness and our own frailties. They cause us to think more about our own sin. But we don't stay there. We are to flee to Christ. We are to flee to Him for forgiveness. We pray that your gospel would comfort us today. We want to honor you. We want to follow you. We want to stay steadfast and we pray that you would help us do so as individuals of the blessed body that is called your church. We pray that you would keep us from stumbling. And we pray these things in His most holy and precious name, amen.